So welcome back, everybody, to What's Important Now from the United States Border Patrol Academy. My name is Jason Owens. I'm a chief patrol agent. We have here today with us union president, national president for the National Border Patrol Council, Brandon Judd. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So as you know, this podcast is discussing things that are important to not only the men and women of the United States Border Patrol, their families, and, and those we serve. And we try to pick things that most people don't know about or don't think about. And I think it's safe to say that if you queried most of the folks in the public, they probably didn't know that the Border Patrol was a unionized workforce. They most likely did not. You know, it's, it's funny because I grew up um, just about 45 miles north of the border. I didn't even know the Border Patrol existed as I was going through high school. So, Same here. And, you know, to, to then say that most people didn't know that we were unionized, yeah, of course they don't know that. Um, now, now, let's be clear, though. We're not like a typical union. Um, we do not um, – uh, we can't strike. We can't um, negotiate wages. We can't do any of those types of things. But what we can do is we can negotiate policies that make the lives of the agents better. Um, we can look at different programs and uh, make suggestions to make those programs a lot better. And, and again, it's all focused on how can we make the lives of the Border Patrol agents better um, so that their family lives are also good as well. And that's a great point. It's, I, I learned a lot about the union whenever I got into the Border Patrol. Matter of fact, I was a member until you know I pinned bars on my collar. It happens to all of us. And I wasn't aware, and when, when I first heard the concept, I thought, well, yeah, we can't strike, so you know, that's what you see on TV. What's a union for? And then I started to learn about the collective bargaining agreement, and then there's a collective bargaining unit and the representatives that are elected by the men and women that, uh, that they serve. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and what makes a union. What is a union? Uh, so, again, if you if you look at the uh, the private sector, unions are a lot different than the federal workforce. Um, what we do is we try to look out for the best interests of the men and women of the Border Patrol and their work-life experience. If we can make it to where, uh, you know, let, let's go back to when you and I both joined the patrol, which was, what, almost 25 years ago? Um, <laughs> so when we joined the, the Border Patrol, it was rotating shifts. We were constantly rotating shifts every two, in, in my case, in El Centro, California. You were in El Centro as well. Um, every two weeks, we were rotating from uh, from shift to shift, and it really wore on your body. Um, it made your, your, your work life difficult. It also made your family life very difficult. And so what we did is we took a look at that and said, what's the industry best practice right now? And we took it to the agency and said, rotating shifts, uh, it's detrimental for these stated reasons. Um, here's what we can do. And and the agency agreed, and we went to uh, a quasi-permanent shift where you bid for, for shifts I based upon seniority. Well, yeah. um, and, and that's made life much better for the agents. Um, when you look at the uh, constant rotating of the, of the days off, um, the holidays, and, and different things like that, what we tried to do is we tried to set a standard, a specific standard, so that everybody understands where am I on the totem pole? Where do I fit? And how is this going to affect my life? Because then you can plan for the future and you can make things, uh, again, you can make your home life much better. So is it, is it safe to say that the purpose of the collective bargaining union is to give voice to the rank and file for the decisions that are made that affect their their daily lives, their work lives. Uh, that's the main thing, and that's what that's what we hope happens. But that can't happen if you don't have the membership involved. Um, so, so we really like to try to get as many of the members involved as we possibly can. Um, you know. A, a lot of our members don't even know this, but within the National Border Patrol Council, we have specific committees. We have a legislative committee. We have a litigation committee. We have a media committee. We, we have several different committees. And in those committees, um, I have vice presidents that specifically run those committees. Um, I have to oversee and make sure that they're, they're run properly, but they're given the autonomy to succeed or fail, and they succeed or fail based upon the input that they get from the men and women in the field. And so I, I wrote down a couple notes here. So, and if the information's uh, inaccurate, let me know. But I have, according to the website, 16 locals currently uh, under the national. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is at different sectors, different uh, different local yep. presidents over the different local chapters at, at the various sectors. You also have a national executive committee that is comprised of 11 members that are either current 
or retired employees of the Border Patrol. That is correct. In fact, right now, we only have one retired, and he just retired at the end of this year. Um, otherwise, all of our elected uh, people in the, in the National Border Patrol Council are active um, Border Patrol agents. We do put on uniforms. We do go out into the field. Um, we do get to see exactly what the uh, what all of our men and women see on a, on a regular basis. We just don't do it as often as what they do. And see, that's a great point, because I think a lot of people maybe don't think about that fact, but in addition to donning the cape of a of a of a union officer, you're board patrol agents. Yes, that is your job. That's your primary job. You still go out and you protect the borders. Well, and and I think that that the thing, what, the reason that we have been so successful, and and you can compare us to any federal union, and uh, just look at our percentage and the. There are 90% of eligible members are dues-paying members of the MBPC. If you look at the federal government, that's normally around 50%. So I think that we do a very good job for the men and women, and our percentages show that. But at the same time, I think that we do that good job because we know exactly what they're going through. We, we try to experience the, the exact same thing. Um, you know, even though I'm, uh, again, quasi full-time, um, I've gone out and, and did a detail, a uh, voluntary detail in RGV when it was exploding out there. Um, when the uh, when it initially started uh, the, the the COVID pandemic and trying to figure out how are we going to deal with this? Are we going to have separate transport units? Are we going to have um, separate processing um, units? How are we going to isolate the virus so that it doesn't spread? Um, me and, and, and my vice presidents, we were the first ones to volunteer um, to go back in the field to do the transport, to do the processing, so that we could figure out how do we do this, how, do, how can we work with Chief Scott to make this happen so that we can try to mitigate the spread within in the Border Patrol. So, yeah, I, I think that we do a good job because we know exactly what the, what the membership is going through, what all agents are going through. So you brought up a, a couple of good points there, but one of which is you take on – even if it's an informal one, a leadership role. It's uh, there. There are more than more than one way to be a leader in the United States Border Patrol. You don't just have to go the the management route. You can take the route that uh, that you took. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we can. We can. And and so uh, again, we, when you look at the route, I actually wish that every single agent got to see what we get to see. Um, I spend a lot of time on Capitol Hill talking with legislators to try to uh, get laws passed that will help not just the mission, but the agents themselves. Um, Recently, um, obviously, we were in the White House on a very regular basis, um, speaking with the top of the executive committee to try to, again, make things better um, for the agents. Uh, At the same time, I, I meet with Chief Scott on a regular basis, speak with him, again, to try to look at the mission how can we accomplish the mission how can we secure the border and at the same time meet the needs of the 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 men and women who put on the uniform that go out there that that we care so much about and when you and i came in a much different dynamic much different environment and sometimes it almost came across as an adversarial relationship but really it's not it's not supposed to be you're supposed to work in lockstep with Chief Scott and all of us. And, and I think most of the time it's safe to say that happens. It does. It does. And in, in, in the vast majority of the sectors, that is exactly what takes place. And, and as long as you have both level-headed managers and you have level-headed union officials, things go smoothly. It's, it's when you don't have one or the other. Um, and it can happen on both sides. Um, I would like to think that the union is better, but um, that's just... You uh, always root for the home team, right? Yeah, of course, of course. You know, i got to put myself in the playing field. Um, but... Uh, but yes, when we work together, it's amazing because anybody that you talk to, if you talk with any any uh, congressman, any elected senator, they will tell you when Border Patrol management and the union are working together, things can get done. Otherwise, we are competing entities. And if we're competing entities, things take forever to get done if they get done. And that's strange to me because it, it, at the end of the day, we all wear this uniform. We're all Border Patrol agents. We all want the same thing. At the end of the day, we want this organization and our green family to succeed and thrive. It's funny sometimes. It is. It is funny. And, and, and again, the dynamic is very interesting. There can be adversary relations. Hopefully, um, you know, hopefully Chief Scott will take a look at that when, when – 
the problem is on his side. Hopefully he'll take a look at that and he'll fix it. But then when the problem is on our side, hopefully we'll do the same. Take a look at it and try to fix the problem. Uh, because when you can do that and when you can work together in, in a, I, I would like to say a partnership, um, but when you work together, you can in fact accomplish a lot of things. And it's been proven time and time again. It has. It's happened. I know from personal experience working with with Hector and, and Laredo and, and, and Rob up in Holton, you know, the, the list goes on and on. And at the end of the day, we're, we're all brothers, you know, brothers and sisters, and, and, and we want the same thing. But it is funny, sometimes we get in our own way. We do. And we do. It, we, we lost track, I think, not just us, but as a country sometimes, that, uh, you know, we can disagree and, and still get along. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I wish that happened in Washington a little bit more. Um, but yes, it, it is amazing that, that egos can be set aside if people are willing to do that. Um, if calmer heads prevail, good things happen. It's when hot heads um, take over and, and when egos get in the way. Um, you and I have discussed that um, at length at times. Um, but if, if you do have calm heads, good things happen. And so... Talking about the National Border Patrol Council side-by-side side with the uh, U.S. Border Patrol Management, those local uh, chapters, they actually have a president, and they themselves have an executive board and, and stewards. Talk a little bit about what that looks like at the sector level and how that interaction is with the stations and with the sectors. So at the national level, we don't get to see everything that happens at, at the specific stations. Um, most, well, a few of our national elected representatives are also local presidents. I'm a local president in the Tucson sector, John Ampenson in Del Rio, Paul Perez in RGV, and Hector Garcia in Laredo. Um, so you have um, several people that are, that are also local presidents because the membership gets to choose. We don't get to crown ourselves. We don't get to, to um, if you will, be kingmakers. Um, we have to get elected by, by the membership. Um, and then at the local level, what we do is we look at specifically what are the policies that are coming out of headquarters and how can we look at those policies and how can we tailor those to the specific working environment or the living environment there in that specific sector. And it's actually broken down even further than that. It goes to the station levels where you'll have chief stewards or lead stewards that then will work with the PICs um, to then look at what's coming out of sector and how can we apply it at the station level and how can we make um, the Border Patrol both on the border and the family life better in our specific station. So there's several different um, um, levels, just like there are of management. Um, there are several different levels, um, and, and hopefully people are, are, are interested in it and want to get involved and want to work their way up. Um, whether you choose the route that I chose or whether you choose the management route, uh, you know, both of them are good. What we want is we want good people on both sides. That have a passion for whatever Absolutely. that is. Absolutely. I, I look at this in much the same way as I do a lot of detail and opportunities within the Border Patrol, and I always say, if you get bored in the U.S. Border Patrol, you're not trying because there's something out there for everybody. The union steward is just another example of that. I think, is it safe to say it, it starts out as almost a collateral duty? They're doing that in addition to going out on patrol. Yes, it, it is. It is a collateral duty. And, and let me tell you, it's, it's very stressful. Um, and, and the reason why it's stressful is because you are dealing with the issues that the agents bring to you. The agents expect you to fix their issues. Most of the times, they're legitimate issues, um, not easy fixes, um, take a lot of time, take a lot of research, uh, take a lot of dialogue with management to try to fix those issues. Sometimes they're not legitimate issues, and we have to be uh, willing to let the, the members know that there's just nothing that we can do on that specific issue. you, you got to remember um, that even though we are unionized, we still have an employer, and the employer has rights, just like the aid, just like the bargaining unit has rights. Um, I should not be impeding on management's rights, and management should not be impeding on on the bargaining unit rights. And again, you know, we're, we're going to talk about this a lot, as as long as that's coming together. But to be a steward becomes very stressful because you take upon yourself other people's, if you will, problems, other people's issues, um, and you're then expected to fix those issues, and that can be very difficult. In addition to everything else an agent has to worry about with their duties out in the field. Yep. So being a member of the union is voluntary. It is. So, But you represent all of them. We do. We do. 
if a person wants to be a member of the union, what do they have to do? So there, there's a form. It's a form. It's called an 1187. Um, you sign up as, as a dues-paying member with an 1187. So let me – so this is an interesting dynamic because most people don't understand this. So – Regardless of whether you're a dues-paying member or not, the policies that I negotiate apply to everybody. I just don't have to take into consideration what a non-dues-paying member wants me to consider. So um, my my duties are, in fact, to those people that are, are what's called paying dues um, because that's what allows us to operate. That's what allows us to be in Washington, D.C., to speak with the legislators. Um, it allows us to operate um, in a manner that we can then accomplish certain things. Without that, you just can't, you, you can't do anything. Right. Without capital, you can't do it. And so what I'm always going to do is I'm always going to take into consideration what the dues-paying members want. But if I negotiate a CBA, if I negotiate a detail management policy, if I negotiate a, uh, a shift bid system, that's going to apply to all of the bargaining unit, whether you're a dues-paying member or not. And only dues-paying members get to vote for that is correct. elections or, that is correct. or anything. Yes. And one step further, so somebody's a, a dues-paying member, and they decided, yeah, you know what, this is something that interests me. I, I want to be a steward. Mm -hmm. How do they do that? So what they would do is at their station, they would go to their lead steward, um, and they would express interest. And then if the, the lead steward won, if there is a need for it, because, again, um, th the problem with having too many stewards is there there's at times not enough to be done. And so what you want to do is you want to have people that are very well seasoned, that know the ins and outs of the labor policies so that when somebody does have an issue, they can actually address it. And so if you have inexperience, um, the issues don't get addressed and they're ultimately going to get passed off onto somebody that knows what they're doing. And so what we want to do is, is when somebody wants to be a steward, we'll, we'll take a look at it and we'll make a decision based upon what is our need at the time. Um, and then we'll, we'll decide whether or not this person will become a steward at that time. Now, anybody can run at any time. Okay, so so let's let's say that in the Tucson sector, somebody decides that you know, hey, I I, I think that I would be a better local president than than Brandon Judd. And Brandon Judd, um, yeah. they can run; they don't have to be a steward. Now that would be folly, and we've seen this before, <laughs> um, where where people with zero experience have run, and those locals have fallen apart. Um, Again, experience absolutely matters, and those people that know how to get things done, um, if, you, if you elect those individuals, um, you're, you're going to have a much better working, not just policies in the field, but a home environment as well. So it, it's very important to look at that and, and try to elect not on. So elections are very interesting in, in, in this country. Um, there are a lot of congressmen that I, I will tell you are not very intelligent individuals. Um, but they ran a popularity contest um, when they ran for election. And, and that can happen in the union as well. That sounds that's like high school. It, it is. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it's the clicks all over again. Um, if, if you elect on popularity, you're not going to have the best work experience, nor are you going to have the best home life. But if you, if you elect based upon uh, accomplishments, based upon qualifications, then you have the best chance to have the best union. And again, I, I, we, we like to look at how do we compare to other federal unions. 90% of the bargaining unit are dues-paying members, whereas the federal government hovers somewhere around 50%. So that does say a lot. That's, it does. Uh, that's something, again, that sets the Border Patrol apart. And you talked about kind of the experience that makes somebody good in, in whatever position. Mm -hmm. And, and on both sides, whether you're talking about a manager or whether you're talking about a union steward, so many times in my experience, the, the source of friction is that lack of understanding of the collective bargaining agreement on one side or the other. Not just the collective bargaining agreement, but yes, that, mm -hmm. is, that is a major piece. But so, so you have to marry all of, the, all of the laws, policies, OPM regs, collective bargaining agreement. You have to look at that and you have to marry all of them together and you have to reconcile when there is an issue. If, if the collective bargaining agreement uh, might appear to conflict with an OPM reg, how do you reconcile that? If, you, if, if a law um, conflicts with a policy, then how do you reconcile that? And so you have to look at all of these different things um, 
all of these different set procedures, and you have to be able to put them all together, and you have to make a, a, uh, a full picture out of it instead of pieces that are over in different areas. And a piece of that that uh, I think either scares people or they're just outright intimidated by, there's a grievance process, mm-hmm. there's unfair labor practices, there's different steps in the grievance process. Yep. Talk to us a little bit about those and what is their intended goal and what is the process for resolution? Uh, hopefully, everything gets resolved at what we call the lowest level possible. possible. So let, let's say an agent um, thought that he or she should have gotten a certain detail, um, a station level detail. Then the agent will take it to a union steward and say, here's why I think I should have gotten that detail. If that agent is correct or the union steward can make the case, they then take it in a perfect world, to the first-line supervisor. And they'll say, hey, first-line supervisor, in in a very calm conversation, they'll say, look, we think that management made a mistake. Um, We're asking you to fix it. Here's our evidence that a mistake was made. Please fix it. If management refuses to fix it or fails to fix it, then you take it to a formal process, which is a written step two grievance, which then goes to the chief of the sector. Um, the chief of the sector will then consider the evidence that is presented by the union. They'll also The chief will also consider, of course, mm-hmm. um, the evidence by management. It, it's an interesting dynamic. There's always going to be two sides of the story. Right. Hopefully, the chief at the sector level will say, okay, the evidence is clearly in favor of the employee, therefore I'm going to rule in favor of the employee, or the evidence is in favor of management, I'm going to rule in favor of management. Hopefully that's what they do. Um, If they don't and the union feels that we still have a case, um, we'll then file another formal grievance, but we'll file it with the chief of the entire Border Patrol. That's called a step three grievance. Um, then the chief will do the same thing that the sector chief was supposed to do, look at it and, and weigh the evidence and then, uh, you know, give a, give a decision. From there, that's not the final step. From there, um, the union can then invoke arbitration where you take it to an outside third party. And when I say an arbitration, this is just like any, any civil court hearing. Um, you have an arbitrator that serves as a judge. Um, you have witnesses on both sides. You have attorneys on both sides. Um, and they will try the case at just like any in, in a court case. Um, and then the independent third party, the arbitrator, will then consider the evidence, consider the laws, consider the policies, consider the regulations, consider the CBA, and then the arbitrator will come back and, and issue a decision. Now, I, I, I will say this, we are extremely successful in, in, in arbitration. Well, I have to think, because by the time you get to that point, if you think it's worth going all the way to arbitration, you feel pretty strongly we about do. it. We do. Also safe to say that at any point along that uh, process that you just described, there can be resolution. Absolutely. Ever any times where you look at uh, the manager's rationale and say, no, you were right, and go back to the employee? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we have to do that a lot. Um, again, that's where the stress comes in. Um, the stress is obviously when management was right and you have to go back and you have to tell your member that you're supposed to be representing, well, that you are representing, um, and you have to tell that member, look, management was in fact correct in this particular case. Here's why. And the, the stu- it's incumbent upon the steward to then explain it. That oftentimes doesn't go over very well with sure, be- because the employee thought that he or she was wronged in some way, and that employee wants a resolution to it. And sometimes the resolution is there's just nothing we can do. Do you ever find that... That is brought on by the person just didn't understand the process or didn't Oftentimes. understand everything that was going so on. So I I trust and I like, genuinely like Border Patrol agents. I believe that, that the vast majority of Border Patrol agents are extremely good people. We get portrayed very bad in the media just, yeah. just simply because our job is very polarizing um, politically. Um, so the vast majority of our agents are very intelligent. And if you... If, if we or if management or whatever the process is, when you educate people on exactly what the process is, here's your rights, here's their rights, here's the policies, here's the CBA, here's the laws, here's the regs, here's all of these different things, here's how they come into play, um, most of the agents understand and get it, and, and they're very happy when they are explained exactly, when it is explained to them exactly how things I couldn't come. agree more. I think even if they don't necessarily like the outcome, because let's, let's be honest, 
we all want to be picked. <laughs> we all, you know, we all want to be that person. But if you don't get picked, if you can at least see the rationale and it makes sense and it seems fair and transparent, we can at least get on board with it. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and again, the vast majority of agents do. But like you said, it might take a day for them to, cool to think about it and, <laughs> and, and recognize and realize. But, but again, the vast majority of agents do, in fact, do that. Yep. And I think that's just human nature. That's it is. A, I mean, so let's talk about you for a second. This is the part <laughs> you dreaded we, the most. How about we don't? I wanted to talk about you because uh, you and I share a very common uh, background. This is uh, We do? We both started almost the same time, within a few months of each we other. Yep. We both started at the same sector, El Centro sector. You were El Centro Station. I was Colexico. Yep. I actually remember when you became the president of the El Centro uh, sector, uh, local. I also know that you have been to uh, Holton sector. Mm-hmm. Where you were. I. Yes, yes, you were the chief there. Uh-huh. I also know that you were a uh, instructor here at the academy. At I one was. Point. Yes, I was. You were a canine handler. I was. You were in intelligence. Mm-hmm. You've been around and run the gambit. You a are bit. a seasoned <laughs> veteran Border Patrol agent. I, I, I like to think my resume stacks up. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I mean, if you if you look at it, um, we, we actually, it, it's kind of funny because uh, when um, Chief Morgan was hired, it was opened up to anybody and everybody. And we looked at the qualifications and I was like, I qualify. Let's make a statement here. Did you apply for the chief? Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, but to make a statement, I was never, I was never going to take it. I mean, I mean, I was interviewed for the commissioner job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when 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 President Trump was elected, I was offered a political appointee job. I didn't take it because I thought that what what I was doing here was, was a lot more important. Um, but the union was willing to obviously, if I would have been selected as the as the commissioner, the union was willing to let me go because that would have been a, that would have been good. But I wasn't going to understand their logic. Yes, I, I wasn't just going to take a, a political appointee job just for for my own vanity. That would have hurt the union. It would have made it look like we this was a quid pro quo, and there was mm-hmm. no quid pro quo. Um, our our um, uh, our endorsement um, was based upon simple facts, and we didn't want it to seem like a quid pro quo. But um, but when the chief patrol agent job opened up, we figured let's let's make a statement. Let's absolutely make a statement. And so yeah, I I absolutely one hundred percent. And and it's funny because when I got my results back, I was one hundred percent found qualified to be um, the chief of the border patrol based upon the resume. Based did you interview? What I've done. I did not. You did interview? <laughs> I did not. Um, well, that's a great story anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, so yes, I, I, I like to think that, that, that my resume does stack up. Um, I, I think it's a good resume. I think that, that, that I've been able to accomplish a lot, and I'm and happy were, with my career. You were class 354? I was. Do you remember your class chant? Uh, hardcore three five four. Hardcore three five four. Very short, very short and sweet. I mean, uh, well, it's easy to remember. It was. <laughs> that's 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 to any border patrol agent's benefit. If it's yeah, easy to remember, yeah. I, I can still I can still remember running behind the the guide on. I can still remember running behind the flag. Um, I, good times. Good and times. You actually have family that are also border patrol. I agents. do. I do. So this is a, a huge part of your life. Yeah, m- most most of my family is law enforcement. If uh, if you're not in the border patrol, you're police. Um, so you know, I, I come from a background where my father was uh, my, my father was a, is a retired lieutenant colonel um, in the army, um, but police work was a, he he was uh, he was in military intelligence, um, and and police work was always his fascination, and that's what he always talked about. That's what was always on TV at home, um, and so that I, th- I think that uh, that drew us to that. So yeah, we like we like uh, we like law enforcement. It's amazing to me that uh, that families that have public servants, whether it be law enforcement, military, firefighters, first responders, we all tend to gravitate toward that same profession. So whether you have family members that are military or family members that are Border Patrol or local law enforcement, they're still in that field. Yes, absolutely. I have two boys, two sons. One's in the Air Force and one's in the Navy. Yep. I have a brother that's an HSI special agent. Uh, it, it, it just goes on and on and on. And it's 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 surprising to me how many times that is the case. You know, and, and I, I find it I find it fascinating this uh, political tension that that exists in the United States today, where law enforcement is portrayed as bad. You and I both know that there are bad apples within law enforcement, but sure. that segment is so few and far between and if if only the public would see or if agencies would just deal with the bad apple and cut that out and and if the public would quit um 
putting us, painting us all in the same corner because one person committed a bad act. Look, we can go to Capitol Hill today and we can find a congressman that is doing some stuff that, that might not be the best things that they should be doing. Um, we can find staffers of congressmen that aren't doing the right thing, but we're not going to paint every single one of them sure. into that corner. But we are, in fact, um, that's what's being done to us right now. But that's the that's the polarization. And, and I think I, I appreciate the work that the men and women of law enforcement do because of all of the scrutiny that uh, the pressure that we're under that that we face on a daily basis. I, I greatly appreciate the work that they do when they get up, they put on that uniform and they go out to do their job because of what we face. It's a tough time to be in law enforcement. It is. It, it just and I tell the trainees that are coming through here whenever I talk to them. That's Border Patrol life. We have been living that reality since our inception because of certain aspects of our mission, which is not our entire mission. We are not only immigration. Our job, as Chief Scott likes to say, is we keep bad things and bad people from coming into the country. We make sure they use the front door, and that is all threats. It's not just one particular aspect that we tend to get uh, tied down to or identified with. Law enforcement in general has had to undergo this same type of scrutiny, probably more so in the past couple of years than, than they have in years past. I would say for the Border Patrol, I don't know if it's business as usual, but we're certainly more accustomed to it. We, we are. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually, you, you said something that triggered a memory. You said uh, we want them to come in through the front door. Um, I actually had, uh, I had the privilege of, of meeting the president in the Oval Office, and we were discussing border security. Um, I had John Amphenson, who's, who's here with us today. Um, I had John Amphenson with me. I had Art Del Cueto and uh, Paul Perez and Hector Garza, and we were all in the Oval Office, and we were discussing border security. We were discussing what policies uh, need to be implemented. How can we better secure the border? And uh, I, I don't remember who said, but, you know, uh, would you would you like them to sneak in your window or do you want them to walk in your front door? And the president says, that's what they need to hear. That's what they need to hear. <laughs> and then he looks around. He looks around and he, and, uh, he said, Sarah, Sarah, get Sarah Sanders in here. You know, can we get the press here? And and she kind of looks at him. And Sarah, Sarah Sanders is a very, very sharp woman. Mm -hmm. She is very intelligent. And she looks at the president and says, Yes, President, the press is always waiting for you to speak. <laughs> he, he says, set it up, set it up. I want them to hear exactly that. So 45 minutes later, we walk out with the President of the United States in the press room, and we give a press, not, not necessarily a press conference because there wasn't any questions, but we got up there and we talked about border security right there on the spot. It was absolutely surreal. Um, very interesting. But, it, again, my, that memory was triggered because you, you mentioned that. Uh, How was that? I mean, who wakes up and joins the Border Patrol or any organization, for that matter, and thinks, one of these days I'm going to go to the Oval Office and I'm going to get to talk to the president? That had to have been just surreal for you. It, it was. It was. And, and, and look, I, I again, I'm going to go back and say the, these are the successes that the MBPC has had. This has never happened with any federal union ever ever. Um, and, and it didn't happen with anybody other than us. Um, you know, we, we put ourselves in that position to be able to uh, effectuate policy um, or, or have a say in, in the policy that needed to be implemented in order to secure the border. Um, and, and I'm going to look back on that time and I'm going to be very grateful for the position that we put ourselves in to be able to do that. And, and all the memories that I'm going to have with people like John Amphenson, Art Del Cueto, Paul Perez, um, all the memories that, that we were able to create because we did such good work that allowed us to be in that position. And is that a framework for how you're going to handle things in the future? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, uh, all, all you have to look at now, um, you know, uh, Secretary Mayorkas just yesterday said that, um, you know, in, in, a, in a confirmation hearing, which is a very, very difficult and tough process, um, Secretary Mayorkas said that the, uh, the National Border Patrol Council supports his, his nomination. Uh, again, we're, we're, we're constantly trying to look at how can we best position the organization for the betterment of the agent. And that's what it's all about. It's all about, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to be able to have this, these experiences, but if you don't accomplish something for the agents, you really haven't accomplished anything. And, and you, you look at the last four years and we were able to get a collective bargaining agreement where nobody else 
was able to get, nobody was able to get a collective bargaining agreement um, after the first year of, of the president's term. There were a few collective bargaining agreements that were signed in 2017, but that's because they were in the works for years up to that, but that administration had nothing to do with it. Um, in fact, that administration looked at those collective bargaining agreements that were signed in, in 2017 and they said, we don't like this, and they passed executive orders um, to cut that out, but we were able to rise above those executive orders, um, and we were able to do that for, again, the men and women of the of the border patrol and and so you look at those things if you look at the uh the physical fitness program that again chief scott uh was was willing to work with us on um and the benefits that 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 wouldn't have happened under a normal administration so there were many many accomplishments that benefited the agents because we were able to position ourselves the way we did so looking back and here you are today and and some of the pretty amazing experiences that you that you've had and I've seen you on different news outlets you know, I, I see you on TV on a regular basis as I do Hector I think I think Paul likes to be behind the scenes a little bit more than, does. than, than yep. most and but uh, you, you have a pretty amazing crew there good good guys go back to whenever you were graduating class 354 and you were in Charleston I was yes did you think one of these days I will be the president of the National Border Patrol Council. First off, I never knew that the, the National Border Patrol Council existed when I, when I joined the Border Patrol. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because uh, when, we, when my class EOD'd in El Centro, what happened was in 1187 was placed in front of us, and we were told to sign that document. And you know how it was back I do. then. Um, I just signed. Same here. That's, that's Same what, here. That's what I did. I just signed. There wasn't an option. You yeah, just it wasn't. You don't ask questions. Um, it's different now. We we do a great deal of explaining to everybody and giving them that option. Now, obviously, I could have quit. Um, sure. You know, at at any time within that first year, and then on, you know, in in August of any um, year thereafter, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I look back at it and I look at the things that fell into place uh, that allowed me to be in the position that I am and the things that I did and the things that I sacrificed in order to get to that position. Same thing as what you did. You know, in, 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 your, in your career path, you had to sacrifice certain things within your personal life to be able to 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 be able to get to where you're at. Well, it's the same thing over here on on our side. There's certain things that you have to sacrifice in order to get there and you have to be able to put yourself in that position and and I'm grateful that I was. I I never dreamed that I that I, that this is how it would be, but I can tell you that I recognized when when I became the president of of the Tucson local, I recognized that there was a lot of political power um, in the MBPC, if there was the vision and the know-how to make it happen. And that's what we did. And we, we've, again, I'm going to go back to what I said before. We've positioned ourselves um, in an area where we can effectuate those different things. And we, we think that we're going to continue to be successful. Was there a moment where you decided, I'm all in, I am going to be the bargaining unit, uh, and that's, that's going to be my career path as an agent? <laughs> It happened in Naco, Arizona, actually. Um, there was a lot of disarray. There was a lot of agents that were unhappy with, with what was going on. And I had a lot of agents that came to me and said, hey, uh, you know, we would appreciate it if you would be the chief steward. Um, they knew my experience in El Centro, and, um, and, and I said that I would. Um, and from that day, it, it was pretty much, at that point, it was pretty much sealed. So it was, it was actually back in um, late 2003, um, when I made that decision and, and from there and, and, and I haven't regretted it since. Um, I mean, obviously when I retire, you're, you're going to retire with a lot more money than what I'm going to retire with, but, um, but I'm going to retire with an awful lot of satisfaction in, in my job. I'm sure you will too. I'm not saying that you won't, oh, sure. yeah. but I am going to retire with an awful lot of satisfaction in what we have been able to accomplish, what the MBPC has been able to accomplish, the good people that I have behind me, the the, the Paul Perez's, the John Amphinsons, Hector Garza, Ardell Guetto, um, Eric Sparkman's, everybody else, um, all of those different people. Um, I'm going to be able to look back and say, we accomplished a lot, and, uh, and, I, and I feel good about it. Now, make no mistake, nobody's going to remember me when I retire. We talked about Nobody. This, yeah. You know, and... and and I don't care about that. That's that's not what I'm I'm worried about. Well, and that's kind of going back to our earlier discussion. It was certainly, we don't get into a job like this to be rich. That's not. It's never going to happen. And while we have a, we're taken care of as government employees, and I'm very thankful for that. I think as as we all are, 
at the end of the day, we come into this organization because we care about this country and we care about keeping it and its people safe, and we we feel a calling. There, there's something that, that calls us to this type of profession, and it does require great sacrifice. It doesn't matter what level a person is at. They can be a hard-charging, ground-pounding Border Patrol agent. They're still sacrificing. They're missing kids' birthdays. They're missing Christmas parties out there on the line keeping this country safe. At the end of the day, because none of us are going to be remembered, that's just how it is. It is. It's uh, All we can hope is. for is to do our part to keep this country safe and maybe leave this green family of ours a little bit better than we found it. And I think you can do that on your side. You can do it on my side. Wherever you find a place to make that contribution, that's what matters. And I hope that everybody wants to do that. I hope that everybody in green wants to do that. Walk away and feel gratified knowing that they did a good job in trying to make this country safe and the, and and all of those people that are in the country safe. I, I hope that everybody walks away and feels that way. So you said you had no idea that the that what the Border Patrol even was. That, same for me. I came from Oklahoma, about as, as, as central as you can get. And I had no concept, and I saw it on, online. It looked fun, and, and I applied, and here I am 25 years later. How did that work for you? Uh, so there was, a, again, going, going through high school, um, there were two individuals in my small town. I, I, I graduated with a class of 34. Uh, that's small a, that's town a small, America. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm from a very, very small town. Well, within that small town, we had uh, two individuals, uh, Esker and Kurt Mayberry, who joined I the Border Patrol. Well, yep. okay. um, they later became, both of them became pilots um, with the Border Patrol when, when mm-hmm. pilots were still. Um, and, and, and I heard about it there. That's the first time that I heard about it. But then my father um, was, I was, um, I was in college. Um, I was working construction, trying to uh, support a, a wife and very small child and put myself through school. And, um, and my father says, look, you need to look into this. You need to look into the border patrol. This is really a good job. It's a, it's a, it not only is it a good job, but it's a very good, good paying job. And I'm like, yeah, let, let me, let me look into this. And he says, well, hey, you know, it takes about two years uh, to get in. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I'm still in college. I, I still have time. Well, back then you didn't apply online because we didn't have internet back yeah, then. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, you had to dial in, you had to call in. Um, and this was on a landline, not on a cell phone. So, uh, I dialed in and, and, and I pushed the prompt. And it said, do you want the normal hiring process or do you not want expedited hiring? I'm like, well, you know what? Why Silly would question. I want to wait? You know? <laughs> so I hit expedited hiring. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was at that time, it was taking anywhere between one to two years to get in the Border Patrol. I was actually, from the time that I hit that expedited hiring to the time that I was in the academy was a month and a half. Um, that's just how, that's how fast that got. Fast. That's, well, they, yeah. so, so they got us in. They, they, they snuck our class in. Our class wasn't actually scheduled. We EOD'd um, on September 29th. We didn't have a scheduled class, but this was when the big push was going on. And they're like, well, let's get this last class in before the fiscal year. And so they threw a bunch of hodgepodge um, people together. And our backgrounds, most of our backgrounds weren't even completed at that time. We didn't even have permanent instructors at the academy. All of our instructors were, were detailed instructors. Mm-hmm. None of them were the, uh, were the permanent staff. Well, because so. Charleston had just been stood up. Yes. It, uh, it was a satellite to the, yep. to the yep. facility in Glencoe. I can remember I went through the expedited hiring process. Did the, you? The same as you. And, and I, I can remember we took the, the written test, and I didn't speak Spanish, so oh. I took the artificial language test. I think they still offer that as an option for uh, non-native speakers. And I studied for it. And But I can tell you, when I walked out of that test, I had no idea if I passed, failed. I it, And there was a an FOS or a watch commander that was there from San Diego, yep. and it was a big auditorium. and had to be a couple That's hundred of us there. Yep, yep. And they said, when we call your name, come down, and if, if, you're, if your paper says a percentage or has a P on it, that means you passed. If it says I-N-E-L, you're ineligible. You can try again in another six months. Who do you think the first name they called was? <laughs> was it yours? <laughs> so little 21-year-old me, I walk down there, and I get that sheet of paper, and I look up, and I see everybody looking at me. I'm, I'm not giving you the satisfaction. <laughs> I didn't look at those results until I was out in the lobby. And, and, and thank God I, I, I did pass, but it was surprising to me there was there was a lot of folks that didn't. The the, the majority. So so when I went in to test, I, I would guess because it like like you, it was in a big auditorium. I would guess that there was probably about two hundred people that were there. Now I spoke Spanish, so I didn't have to go through that that yep. made up language test. Luckily, I, you know I spent two years in Chile, um, so I spoke Spanish fluently, um, which is what I taught at the academy as well. But um, uh, there was about 200 people there. There were only 32 of us that passed. 
that test. And when we passed that test right there, if you passed, you immediately went over to the oral hiring board that they already had set up on site. And if you passed the oral hiring board the very next day, you went and you did your physical. Um, screening, yep. Yep, and then and then the, the process kicked off. That's why it only took a month and a half because I hit that expedited hiring button and I tested a week later. Um, so... Hit expedited hiring, tested a week later, did the oral hiring board that day, did the uh, the medical the very next day, and then it was sent off for the background um, check, and I was in the academy. Much smaller organization, obviously under yes. the Department of Justice and INS at the time. Those days are gone. I think it, de- it definitely <laughs> takes uh, the better part of six months for most people to get through now. But I, I heard horror stories back then. of Some of my classmates took a couple years yes. or more yep. to get through the process. So. Yep. I think patience is the key when it comes to applying for any federal job. It is. And certainly with a law enforcement one as well. So for anybody that's listening out there that is in the process, be patient, stay the course, don't give up. It, it's, it's worth Good advice. Wait. Good <laughs> advice. So you have to have a, a best memory or best story, a war story out on the job. So <laughs> try and paint the picture for what this job is like for everybody that's interested in the families as oh. they see us walk out the door. What's one of your your most exciting moments that oh, I can't believe I got paid for this. <laughs> there's so many, um, there's so many, but I, I would have to say that, the, that the best one was in Naco, Arizona. Um, it was during the monsoon season and it was on Walker's ranch and, uh, it was flooding. It was absolutely flooding. And we had, we, I was the, the team leader of the, of what we called the fist team. It's the mountain team, but it was called the fist team because we liked, we loved, you know, really cool, um, acronyms at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it was do, sure. yes, I, <laughs> but it was the fifth team, um, equivalent of the mountain team. We were, I was the team leader on that and we had, we were having several groups that were coming up through Walker's ranch and, um, and, and we literally had, had, had flooding where we were walking through, um, not washes. These weren't washes. These were just on land where the water was up to my thighs. Um, and we ended up that night in, in all of this flooding where we were just soaking wet, we ended up um, apprehending five groups um, of, of right around 119 people that, that night. Um, and this was, a, this was a team of about seven people at the time. Um, and, and seven of, of you know, myself and my team members, we ended up apprehending five groups of 119 people. And, and that wasn't, the numbers weren't unusual, but the circumstances were unusual. And chasing these people through water that was, that was thigh high, that was, that was fun. That was, that's not anything that I've ever been able to do again. Um, and so I, I would walk away with that. But, but uh, Chief, you know that there's, there's so many different memories. I, I, I well, can go back to, I can go back to training El Centro where my very first time that I, I turned on um, my lights to make a vehicle stop, this van, well, they started throwing people out of the van. That that was that I was a trainee, and they were throwing people out of the van, you and I put it on the right. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, it was so just a lot of different experiences. Um, well, and and I think people listening, especially if they're not in this uniform, you're describing to you what is fun is wading through thigh high flash flood waters at midnight. At by midnight, the way. It, was, it was in it was, the middle of nowhere, yep. and you and your patrol group apprehending the better part of 120 people. Now, you talk about in terms of the sheer number of arrests, that's not unusual for the Border Patrol. For most other law enforcement organizations, it's extremely unusual. unusual. Uh, again, I've got family that's, uh, that's you know, got a police officer brother, um, and, you know, he, he – he doesn't make an arrest a night. He doesn't average an arrest a night. Whereas uh, back in Nakwa at that time, we, for three years running, we were arresting, we made um, over 100,000 arrests for three years in a row. And this was a small stretch of border with about 200 agents, um, 100,000 arrests with 200 agents over a year's period of time. It staggers yes. the imagination. Yeah. And just, it, it is something that you have to experience or see to believe we can talk about it all day long and you see movies and tv shows that they kind of tout what life and other law enforcement organizations is about and and certainly they are venerable and, and great in their own right 
You know, and, and, and if you don't mind, I'd, I'd like to, to, to say another experience that I'm thinking about. I, I, I also think that one of the, the best experiences that I have ever seen is also the compa- compassionate aspect of Border Patrol agents. I have seen Border Patrol agents bring in diapers to processing centers. Um, I've seen Border Patrol agents bring in food and, um, and toys for children in processing um, centers. I've seen Border Patrol agents have people in the back of their ride, and they will go through a drive through and get mm-hmm. these people food because these people haven't eaten. And so, you know, we can we can laugh about the exciting time. We can look back and say th- those were exciting times. But I also like to reflect on all of the great things that Border Patrol agents Absolutely. have done for other people, that they were willing to sacrifice their own money, um, their own means for other people that they didn't even know. And, and, I, and I look back on that and I say, you know, this is a – we have great people. Makes you proud to be a part of it. It does. That's something that, uh, again – doesn't get talked about enough. But if you're in the position to make that difference in somebody's life and the type of person that's called to do this type of job, that's why, I, you know, for me at a visceral level, I feel it whenever I feel like they're being portrayed unfairly, and I know it does for you too. That's the stuff that we need everybody to see. That's the stuff that defines who a Border Patrol agent really is. And I think, by and large, each and every one of them out there do that day in and day out do. to some extent. They do. So what's next? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> you, you're you've been well, in almost twenty five years. You're, you've been the president of the National Board of Council since two thousand thirteen. I have, yes. What's next for Brandon Judd? That's a good question. Uh, so um, I own I own about seventy one acres um, at home, and and I Lucky. I'm, I'm hoping to uh, I, I've I've got seven hundred trees that I'm planting right now. Um, I'm hoping that one day when I retire, that I'm going to have a little farm uh, going on that I can relax and have the grandkids come over and have a large area that they can they can see and play on and and, and visit and have have a good time. I mean that's that's what I'm looking at. But obviously, I want to stay active. Um, I like politics. Mm-hmm. I enjoy politics. Um, I I intend to to stay um, very active in politics. I think that I'm good at it. Um, I think that that's been proven. Um, so I, I I plan on doing that. But uh, I can tell you that I still like my job as a board patrol agent. I still like being the union president. Um, I've I've got I'll hit 25 years when I'm 49 years old. In about a year eight. Eight months in, I don't know, 27 days. I, I not that know, you're counting. Like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I didn't have it exactly right, so I'm not counting, right. you know, by the hour. But, uh, you know, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when I get there, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it, and I, I'm going to – when I do go, I'm going to be able to look back. I believe I'm going to be able to look back and say I liked what I did. So I asked that question because to achieve longevity in a career like this, you have to have goals. You have to have plans. You have to have something that keeps you grounded and you do. focused. You do. And for a lot of us, that's our family, and that's what we want to do when we exit this career. What is that for you? So uh, again, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna sit back on that uh, that beautiful piece of land that I own. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna look at those pecan trees growing, and I'm gonna relax, and I'm gonna have the grandkids running around, and we're gonna have go karts and ATVs, and uh, sounds like heaven. You know, I, yeah. I, I think it's gonna be. I mm-hmm. think I think it's gonna be. So. so whenever we talk to the trainees about work life balance, and we have to remind them consistently, because I'll be honest, it. Uh, as a 21-year-old kid that came into, you know, this this organization, it was lost on me at, at some point. There's somebody else that's on this ride with us, and it's our families. And they sacrifice just like we do. What advice can you give trainees coming in on that aspect of this job? So it goes by so fast. Uh, you, you'll be the first person to say this. You know, you're, you're coming up on 25 years. You would probably say, if I look back at, at my at myself 25 years ago, I would go back and I would slap myself because I just didn't know everything that I thought that I knew. Yep. Um, what I would tell a trainee is stick it out. Stick it out. It's worth it. Um, as the time goes by, you're, you're going to recognize that if I stay with this job, there's so many different benefits to it. There's so many different things that I can do. I can run the mountain team. I can be an intel. I can be a canine handler. I can promote um, to a first-line supervisor. And from a first-line supervisor, um, I can become a watch commander or I can go and be in an ops department. I, there's so many different things that you can do um, as long as you're willing to do what's necessary to make that happen. And that's going to require a little bit of sacrifice. 
but we all have to do that. If you want to be a doctor, I'm, my, my best friend in college is an orthopedic surgeon, my high school and college, my college roommate. He's an orthopedic surgeon. I was well into my career. I was 12 years into my career before he was done with all of his schooling. That includes medical school, residencies, um, all of the different trainings that he had to do. He had to sacrifice to get there. We also have to sacrifice. And I would tell any young agent, find what you want to do, make the sacrifices to get there, but at the same time, look for how you can help your family along in that, in that journey include them in that journey and it will be a lot more satisfying i tell them include your family and include them often include them early and include them often yes at the end of the day you're going to be going to them and you're going to be telling them about what's going on or they're going to have to understand whenever you feel a certain way because of the day that you had yep. and if you don't include them they can't be that support network that, uh, that that you do depend on and i can tell you for them, just like it is for us, I you know going from Oklahoma to to El Centro, California, that was a big leap yeah. for me. And then everywhere else that I've been, and and my kids, you know, I, as I said before, in the military now, and and they're living that life. They're they're getting stationed multiple places, and and, and their families are going to be in that uh, same boat. It's not an easy life to live, but it's that sacrifice that we make for something greater. It is. It is. You know, I, I'm I'm going to turn the tables real quick. So you tell me. What's in the future for Chief Owens? <laughs> okay, you get to do the interviewing. You get to ask the questions. Sure. Um, yeah. you, you've, you've gotten to speak with uh, Chief Scott. You've gotten to speak with Dr. Fauci. Um, you, you get to ask questions, but you never get to explain exactly. <laughs> so, so why don't you tell us, why don't you tell the people that are, that are going to watch this, what's in the future for Chief Owens? You know, I hope future guests don't take your cue and, and do the same thing every time. No, I, like you, I absolutely love being a part of this organization. I have no plans to, to leave it because it is very fulfilling. And, and so many of the people that I am close to and, and consider family wear this uniform. And I think you just look for the day whenever you're not making the, uh, you're not making a, a positive contribution anymore. That's when it's probably time for you, for you, for you to exit. And, and post border patrol for me is all about family 150 percent i've got i've got a place up in maine that i kept i i do love the area in oklahoma that i'm from i i, I love texas you know I, I got there what's the old saying i wasn't born there but i got there as quick as i could yeah i, I love the hill country what I want to do is have a, uh, a place that I can go up north and a place I can go in south. And in between, I have an RV, and I'm going to follow my kids around, and I'm going to be in the lives of my grandkids. I have, I have a granddaughter now that has absolutely defined everything about my plans for annual leave and, and, and where I'm going to go in, in, the, in, the, in the foreseeable future. That is what I look forward to, and those are the things that mean something to me. The career aspirations, the uh, I think we all have them. We all try and, and achieve whatever that goal is that we set. But we talked about it before. At the end of the day, when we walk out the door, this machine will not stop running. Somebody else will step in and take our place, and that's what we want. Yep. That is absolutely what we want. We want for this next generation to be better than we were because we look back on it with pride. And we say, okay, this organization, I will always be proud to say that I was a part of it and I made a contribution. I'm part of that legacy. And, 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 you know, enjoyed the answer. So you've got this radio voice, right? Um, it's, 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 <laughs> My it's, it's, you know, you know it's, it's, it's this radio voice. So, you know, I think what your listeners would really like to hear, because again, you're a chief patrol agent. Tell us the funniest story that you have, Chief Scott. Let's make fun of Chief <laughs> Scott right now. How about we do that? Everybody knows who Chief Scott is. Make fun of him. I'll tell you my impression of, of Chief Scott. This guy is a, uh, he is absolutely a down-to-earth, very approachable guy. When you see him, you first the, his demeanor that he gives off, you don't think he's going to be very approachable. But I'll tell you, we, we pulled a fast one on him, and it was uh, the STRATCOM team here, the ones that are responsible for this, this amazing uh, uh, program that we've got now. A couple of the guys had worked for him in El Centro. You know, he was the, uh, the chief over there. And they had this uh, shrine that they made with his picture. And when he walked in to meet him for the first time, they were doing the <laughs> bowing and everything. And, of course, it just, uh, you know, he thought it was hilarious. And, and that, that's just the nature of these guys. They're, they're, they're funny. Well, we put a picture uh, behind me when we were interviewing him, and it was of his family because he is a family man. 
those are the types of individuals that, and, and we have a lot of them, whether it be on the union side, whether it be in, in management side, or just out there uh, taking care of business every single day, that ought to and deserve to be the role models for the next generations coming up. That's what I would like to see. I'd like to see those folks take on the role of role model and, and, and examples instead of some of these others that, uh, that have been propped up in society. I wish so too, but I, I was I was seriously hoping that you were going to tell me a story of pantsing Chief Scott in front of everybody else in the chief meeting or something like no. that. I, mean, I was hoping we were going to go there, but you know, since we didn't, look, I'm I'm going to tell you um, just real quick, uh, Paul per- Paul Perez, my my executive vice president. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, this dude does not care about my sleep or my time at all. Doesn't care. Doesn't care. But this guy, this this is who he is. He lives and breathes trying to fix things for agents. He will call me at 2 o'clock in the morning yelling at me, do you know what just happened? We got to fix this. We got to fix it right now. I'm like, Paul, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You know, I realize that that's 4 o'clock D.C. time, but I still can't call the chief at 4 o'clock. Sorry, dude. Um, but, yeah, and, and then and then he'll call me, you know, on the hour. We still got to fix it. We still got to. I, I, this, this is this guy. This guy is absolutely insane that he doesn't sleep. All he does is works, and then he expects me to do it as well. And I'm like, no. No, I like my sleep. I don't work like you. I'm not as good as you, but yeah, that's uh, that's well, Paul. Now I haven't pantsed him either, but I. Well, I good although to know. I was hoping that you were going to tell me that you pantsed the chief. Well, you I know, there's Paul either, but you know that's, that's there's certain stories that have to have a statute of limitations that you can't talk about until you know <laughs> after you retire, and 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 I think some of those fall into that category, but. Now you have an amazing group of people. Paul Perez is absolutely. Yeah. I forgot to mention him earlier. It's yeah. uh, and it just is indicative of the people that you represent. It's an amazing group of people that go out and do this job each and every day. Any final message you want to give to them? No, look, that, that was you covered it all. I mean, what what, what more is there to say? So. All right, Brandon, thank you so much for being here and and taking a tour of the academy. You hadn't got to be here in quite a while. It was great. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. Until then, honor first.